Imagine, if you would, that you were standing on the banks of the Red Sea. And you were one of the Israelites. You had been enslaved, making bricks, sometimes with straw, sometimes without. But now you had been delivered. You had witnessed, heard about the ten plagues. You would have been one who would have partaken in the first Passover meal because that was a part of your deliverance. The sign of the covenant was the blood that you had spread upon your doorpost, above your door. And now you're standing on the banks of the Red Sea. But Pharaoh, one more time, has hardened his heart. And he is pursuing. With the desire to capture, even perhaps kill you. Now, if you read in the book of Exodus, some of the Israelites began to murmur and to complain and to be concerned with the fact that perhaps Moses had led them out to be destroyed. And so they began to cry out and to be concerned. And we remember, of course, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, maybe some of you even remember the old Ten Commandments movie and Charlton Heston and all of that. But the statement... Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, if you read the entire account of what's taking place there in the book of Exodus, God provides a strong east wind to blow all night, and the sea is parted. And so I want you to imagine that you're one of those Israelites, and you're standing on the bank of the sea, and the, the waters have been parted. And behind you, Pharaoh pursues. And as you're standing there, one of your fellow countrymen looks and says to you, would you pass through the Red Sea with me today? Would you be willing to go, friend, with me because I see that we only have one opportunity here. It's now or never. And I know by faith we must pass through the waters of the Red Sea. It did take some faith, didn't it? Hebrews chapter 11 says it did. And the reason why it took some faith was because there was enough water there to drown the entire Egyptian army because that's what took place. And imagine what that must have been like to walk through on dry ground with a wall of water on each side. Could you see the the fish swimming on the side as you walk through the walls of water and you had to depend on God to keep His promise that those waters would not encompass you and drown you. Yes, it was going to have to take some faith. But you see, there was only one opportunity. And there was only one way for salvation to take place. And it was through obedience. If you look again in Hebrews chapter 2, if you look at the text that was just read, I want you to understand that the background for this epistle written by the Hebrew writer was contemplating the time in the past where the Israelites had to follow God by faith. And of course, the theme of this great book is the greatness of Christ and the fact that Jesus is better, better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the priesthood and everything else that the new covenant that Jesus had established was better. 
But there were some Jews that wanted to draw back. There were some that were being enticed or influenced to try and do the things that they used to do according to the old law. Maybe kind of like some of those Jews that were, or the Israelites that were standing on the banks of the Red Sea and and asking, can we go back? Maybe it would be better if we had died in Egypt. Now, think about Hebrews chapter 2 and also look at Hebrews chapter 3 real quickly. Where, if you begin at about verse 7, the writer there says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, and the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold to the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with not all those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And again, allow Paul to describe to you some of the things we can learn from the people of this day that the Hebrew writer is also discussing. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. When you think about some of these passages, and you think about what had taken place as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, and Egypt represents, in the New Testament age, the slavery of sin. The wilderness, we might say, is that place that we find ourselves in called life on the other side of baptism, the Red Sea, in which we must trust on God until we finally pass over death, the Jordan, into the promised land, which is heaven. And all these things in the Old Testament are copies of the truth, the Hebrew writer says. 
Even Moses was a type of Christ who was to come. And Moses spoke about the one who was going to come in his likeness. And he told the people that they were going to have to listen to every word that he was to say and obey it. And so we can take some of these Old Testament stories and we can apply them to today. And as we see the New Testament writers unveil the truths that exist therein, we can understand just how important it is for us to not neglect so great a salvation. To not forget about what God has done. And to realize that we must go on to perfection. I want to think about this phrase. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? For just a few more minutes with you tonight. Let's begin with the first part of that phrase. How shall we escape? That's what they were trying to do. And let's face it, that's what we're trying to do. The word escape is used for the first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter 19. And it's in reference to Lot. As the angels were trying to push him out of the city, even to the point where they had to grab him and his family and by God's grace take them out of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the fire that was to come. It says in verse 17 of Genesis 19, it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Escape. He was trying to escape the righteous judgment of God upon a sinful nation that had been doing abominable things in the eyes of God Almighty. So we have the idea of escape. And it means to flee, to to take safety in flight. We all have something from which we too must escape. Some people want to escape from death. Some people want to cheat death. Years ago, a man by the name of Alan Seeger, who was born in 1888 and died on July 4, 1916, wrote a poem that some of you have probably heard before. I have a rendezvous with death. He wrote it during World War I. He was serving in the French Foreign Legion. And actually, Seeger is the uncle of American folk singer Pete Seeger, who you've heard of, of course. And he also was a classmate of T.S. Eliot while at Harvard. But this young man, and some people believe that he wrote this from a foxhole during World War I, talked about the reality of the fact that he had a rendezvous with death. He said, I have a rendezvous with death at some disputed barricade when spring comes back with rustling shade and apple blossoms fill the air. I have a rendezvous with death when spring brings back blue days and fair. It may be he shall take my hand and lead me into his dark land and close my eyes and quench my breath. It may be I shall pass him still. I have a rendezvous with death on some scarred slope of battered hill when spring comes round again this year and the first meadow flowers appear. God knows twere better to be deep pillowed in silk and scented down where love throbs out in blissful sleep Pulse night night to pulse and breath to breath, where hushed awakenings are dear. But I have a rendezvous with death. At midnight in some flaming town when spring trips north again this year, and to my pledged word am true, I shall not fail that rendezvous. Alan Seeger was killed in action not long after he wrote that poem, and it was actually posthumously printed and became one of the great 
early American poems. We all have a rendezvous with death, don't we? And we cannot escape it. It is the wage of sin, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says. So some people want to try and escape from death, but we know that we cannot. Still others want to escape from the judgment of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're reminded that we're not going to escape that judgment. In fact, we're we're reminded that we need to be diligent, that we need to be faithful, that we need to encourage one another and exhort one another. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 23, where he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Some people try to escape death. Others want to escape judgment. But for Christians, we need not fear either of those two things because of the salvation that is possible and that is real in Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid of death. And I'm not afraid of the judgment. I will be, I will be fearful of the God who will judge me. I will respect Him. The Bible tells us that Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We know that's going to take place in the day of judgment. But I don't have to fear the results because of the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. We're not going to escape death or judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, It's appointed a man wants to die, and after this the judgment. What is it that we're trying to escape then? I would present to you that it's what we read about in Revelation chapter 20, starting about verse 11, where it says, John saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, and the one from whose face earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up its, the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Again, in Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what we're trying to escape. That second death. We can't escape the first death. We can't escape the judgment. And for a Christian, if you really are a Christian, and if you love God, and if you care about heaven the way that you should, Jesus' coming is the best thing that could ever happen. And death is only the ultimate possibility. For a child of God, a stepping 
stone to immortality and what God has prepared for those who love Him. But how shall we escape? How shall we escape the second death? We cannot if we neglect the salvation of God. So the second part of that talks about if we neglect. How shall we escape if we neglect? The word neglect is found three times in the Bible, in the King James Version. In Matthew chapter 18, in verse 17, and really you need to back up to verse 15 to understand the context. It's discussing when someone sins against you, when a brother sins against you, and how to resolve that conflict. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let it be unto thee even as a, a heathen man or a publican. If he neglect. The word here is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, but it's rendered neglect in the King James Version. And it means to refuse to hear, to pay no attention to, pay no heed, to be a casual, casual listener. Are we neglecting the words of God in that way? The other two times that the word neglect is used is once, of course, in our text tonight, how shall we escape if we neglect? Hebrews 2 and verse 3. And then 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14, where Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. That particular word, neglect, is a little bit different, and it means to be careless or to make light of something. To make light of something. And this was the issue. This was the problem that... It had somehow drifted away from their mind and their heart what God had done. Think about it. The ten plagues, the power of the ten plagues. And here they were standing on the banks of the Red Sea and they were beginning to mumble and to complain and to even cry out and not believe that God could save them because they were forgetting. They were not taking seriously the power of God and what He could do. We already read that passage in Hebrews chapter 10 the warning about counting the blood of the covenant by which we have been sanctified, a common thing. Did the Israelites neglect, or did they somehow lack appreciation for the works of God? Yeah, the track record shows. But the question that I have for you is, do we? Do we? Do we really believe what God has done? How do we feel about what Jesus has done in our lives to save us, Where is that fresh feeling that we had when we were baptized? Where is that excitement and joy that is supposed to be vibrant in the life of a Christian person that's supposed to live in our lives every single day? Or do we begin to neglect so great a salvation? I was thinking about ways in which to try and illustrate neglect. And I came across this article that I thought was pretty interesting. Top ways people neglect their car. It was written just last year by a man named Carl Nolan. Every day we see hundreds of cars on the road, and the sad fact is that most of these cars are neglected by their owners. Unfortunately, many owners don't take very good care of their cars, and in turn their cars lose value quicker. This article describes five five examples of how people neglect their cars on a daily basis. Some of the simplest things for a person to do for their car are neglected. 
and it can determine the factor of how long your car will last. Here's the five they give. Number one, don't change the oil. Do you have one of those, I'm not trying to pick on the women here, but I think my wife might allow the oil light to go on and just let it go on for maybe a month and not tell me about it until the engine's burned up. Do we neglect things like that? Do you change your oil? He says, some people don't change the oil. One of the most common ways that people neglect their cars is by not changing the oil. If you fail to change the oil in your car, there's a good chance that you can permanently damage your engine, which can lead to thousands of dollars in repair or replacement. Many people will go several thousand miles and even years before they change the oil. If you want to get the most out of your car, then an oil change is an absolute must every three months or 3,000 miles. Number two, some people treat it like it's a trash can. Another way people neglect their car is never taking time to clean the interior and always treating it like a trash can. If you've ever gotten in someone's car and the seats and floors look like the floor of a movie theater, then you know what this is all about. Take time to clean your seats, remove dirt and food and anything else that can be harmful to your interior. I have three small children. I understand what he's talking about here. Incorrect tire pressure, number three. If you don't take time to check your tire pressure weekly or even daily, you will be contributing to uneven wear of your tires and causing yourself diminished gas mileage. Take a few moments every day and make sure that your tires are inflated correctly so that they last longer and don't end up costing you a fortune in extra gas money. Number four, hard starts and stops. A lot of people are oblivious to the fact that the way they drive is hard on their car. If you want your car to last long as possible, then you need to make a habit out of braking, uh, make a habit of braking smoothly uh, and accelerating smoothly. If not, you will cause unnecessary wear and tear on your brakes and transmission. And finally, some people never wash it. Going a long time without washing the car, you know, the ones where people write, wash me on the back, <laughs> can be really hard on the paint. If you don't remove dust and debris, then you'll, risk the, you'll run the risk of damaging your paint job. And over time, dirt and scum will collect on the paint will become abrasive. If you don't take time to clean the paint and then to seal it with a good wax coat, there's a good chance that it will fade quicker than it should. And he goes on to talk about the importance of not neglecting your car. But I want to just, quick application here. Changing the oil. Oil keeps things running smoothly. Lubricates the engine, right? Oil is like, for a Christian, it's like an attitude. How often do you change your attitude and clean up your attitude so that everything's running smoothly? Or do you just neglect that? Or what about the trash can? How is our interior looking? Depends on if we expose ourselves to trash and if we leave that trash in there. Or what about tire pressure? Are we just flat? Are we just flat? Are we allowing ourselves to go to the left or the right because... We do not spend time in the Word of God. What about hard stops and hard starts? Back and forth. That's the story of our life, right? You're probably running to get here on time, some of you. You'll be running to go somewhere else. I'm running to go somewhere tomorrow. And you barely have time to really think about God. When you do pray, you get it done over quickly so you can eat your meal and move on. And if you read, you're reading through the Bible, but you're not reading for comprehension because you do feel like you need to read the Bible, but, you know, you've got other things to do. Hard starts and stops. And what about never washing it? You know, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 reminds me as a Christian 
that I am daily being cleansed by the blood of Christ. Because I have continual sins that I need to repent of. And it tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, you don't just wash your car one time when you buy it and never wash it again. And folks, when you become a Christian, you're not just washed one time. You enter into a relationship with God that way, through the blood of Jesus, but that blood continually cleanses you, and so you have to call upon God for that cleansing and for that washing. And if you neglect that, then you're going to have a dirty life. How shall we escape if we neglect? So great a salvation. You you go back to that statement that Moses makes. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And what a great statement that is when you really contemplate salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is defined as deliverance, as preservation, as safety. Salvation is our escape. We've talked about escape. Salvation is the reality of that escape. And let's face it, none of us deserve it. None of us deserve salvation. All our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. None is righteous, not one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. We know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We know that our sins have separated us from our God. Our iniquities have hidden His face from us so that He cannot, will not hear us. Isaiah 59 And yet God offers salvation. What a beautiful word it is. What a beautiful idea. Salvation. That's what we want. That's what we desperately need. And I know that I feel like on the day of judgment that I want God to have mercy on me. I don't want justice because I know what justice demands. It demanded that my own Savior die for me, that the very Son of God would leave heaven to pay the penalty for my sins. That was justice being served. But I want mercy and grace in the day of judgment. I desire salvation. And this word salvation is used 164 times in 158 different verses in the Bible. And so, thankfully, it's a common theme, a very strong theme in the Bible. Think about all of those different verses, even in the New Testament, that talk about salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Romans 1, verse 16. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10. Romans 13 and verse 11. And do this knowing the time that it is now high time to wake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today or now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance not to be regretted, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures that have been able to make you wise into salvation 
2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Titus chapter 2. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, though he was a son, that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. I could go on and on about the verses, even in the New Testament, that talk about the salvation of God. But what I'm trying to get you to understand tonight is how beautiful it is. How wonderful it is. How everything that we have rests on the reality of our salvation. You know one thing that I don't understand? I've never understood this. Now, I was blessed to be raised in the church, raised in a preacher's family. And so I was always exposed to the Bible, and I was a part of the church. First time I came to services, I was five days old. Don't know that I've missed except for sickness since then. And one time I lied to my parents because I wanted to watch a football game. So I'm confessing that. But I was a kid, so I think I've been forgiven. You know, people all over this world go to bed every night, and they don't know where they're going to spend eternity. I don't know how they do that. And people go through their day and through their life all the time and they don't know the truth. They don't know the truth about the Bible. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. I don't think I could stand that. I would think that just what God has put in me to desire to know Him. He tells us in Acts chapter chapter 17 that He's made us in such a way that all should grow for Him and and find Him because He's not very far from each one of us. Romans chapter 1, it says that since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that without excuse. What it's saying there is God is there. It's obvious that He's there by the things that He's made, and He's created us in such a way to seek Him. And I would like to think that even if I hadn't been raised in the church, and if I hadn't been exposed to the Bible, that I would be looking for it. Because everything rests on what's going to happen later. Not just on what's happening now. Everything revolves around our relationship with God. So how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? September 9th of last year, I was five minutes into my sermon at Willow Avenue. One of the elders walked up the, the middle aisle and said he was going to have to stop my sermon. Now, my first thought was, I was afraid, and what did I say? <laughs> that was always you know, one of the preacher's nightmares, that maybe some kind of thing would come in his head that wouldn't come out of his mouth the right way, and someone would thought he would have taught something that he had to be removed. But I knew in just a moment, after that very brief thought went through my mind, that he was coming forward because something was happening bad in my family. In fact, by the time he got up to the side of me and I was standing here and I still had the mic on and we were on the radio, I just asked, is he gone? And I was referring to my father. And he said, your father's had a heart attack. You need to go right now. So I walked to the back, got my wife, got in the car, started down the road in just a couple of minutes. I talking to my friend two hours away where I used to preach, who's a close friend and a fireman there who'd gone to the scene, let me know that my father had passed. Went to bed the night before, spoke to him before, 
Never woke up the next day. I want to tell you the first thing that went through my mind when I found out my father had passed. My best friend. I thought, what a great father I have had. What a wonderful father I have had. You know what? I didn't think a thing about where he was because I knew where he was because he was a Christian, because he was a strong Christian, because he was a faithful Christian. He taught me how to love God and how to love my family and how to put other people before myself and how to be, at least hopefully, working on this one, how to be humble and how to listen and how to have a work ethic and all the things that I needed to be taught about my Heavenly Father he had displayed before me. He did not neglect his salvation. And so, don't you understand that, that everything is riding on our salvation? And our relationship with God, even at this very moment? And, and what I want to ask you tonight, I want to put you right back on the banks of the Red Sea. Just one more time. I want to put you there. Because you think, you think you've got time. You think that Whatever is going on, it's not that big of a deal. The sin that you've been kind of pushing over to the side that you haven't dealt with, you can deal with that later. Or perhaps you think another Sunday will come and another preaching sermon will come and I'll have an opportunity to finally step out and do what I need to do to be saved. But I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to pass through the Red Sea with me today? Today, because as I look behind, I see no other option. I see one chance. And Moses had said that we can see the salvation of God today. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There's not a person in this building that needs to neglect it. There's not a person in this building that doesn't need the grace of God and I'm asking you, friends, we depend on God to take you all the way, not only through those baptismal waters, but even into the promised land where He wants you to go. It's your choice tonight. I want you to understand how much God loves you and how great this salvation is that He's created through the love and the blood of His Son. And I don't want you to neglect it. Realize that awaiting you is a new and uncharted territory of a relationship with God that can grow into the very thing that He put you on this earth to experience. Embrace the salvation of God. And if you're not a Christian tonight, won't you obey the Gospel? If you believe in Jesus Christ, won't you repent of your sins and confess His name and be immersed in water for the remission of your sins so that you can be a part of the New Testament church? So that you can be in a safe relationship with God? So that you can wear the name Christian? so that you can walk in newness of life. And if you are a Christian, will you stop neglecting what God has done for you and will you rededicate your life to Him and tell Him how much you appreciate what He's done for you by the way that you live? You know, this, this exhortation, this word of exhortation, the Hebrew writer says at the end of the book, this is a word of exhortation. It was written to people that were already members of the body of Christ. We need to be constantly reminded just how wonderful it is to be a child of God. And if you need to be renewed in your spirit, won't you ask for prayers tonight? Don't neglect the salvation of God tonight. If you have a need to come forward, won't you come as together we stand and sing?